So we are in our third session of Musar. Many of you have done this before. Some of you have not. I've got some people that have wandered in since we started. I am going to go a very quick overview. Musar, as most of you know, is practical sanctification from a Jewish perspective. And one of the things to understand is holiness is not just keeping out of trouble. So today in the Isaiah reading, I believe it was, it says, stop doing evil and do good. And it should be obvious to anybody that's paying attention that there are two commandments there. Commandment number one is stop doing evil. Cease doing the evil that you've been doing. But then commandment number two is actively do good. So ceasing from evil is not the same as doing good. Musar, the first phase is to stop doing evil. Figure out what things you need to correct about yourself and stop doing them. But the more important phase is doing good. Moving from staying out of trouble to actually being an asset to God's kingdom. One of the things that we said last time is we are all created incomplete. And that the fact that you are not born perfect is a feature. It's not a bug. You were designed imperfect. And the imperfections that you have in your life should form for you a curriculum on how to proceed with practical spiritual development. One of the things that Musar does is it starts with an inventory, which most of you, I hope, were starting this last week. And we'll talk about how you did in the inventory last week. We'll get to that in just a second. So the first phase is to do an inventory. Figure out what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, where you need to improve, and whatever. As you discover things about yourself are not pleasing to you and probably are also not pleasing to God, it's fairly important that you not get condemned about that. Because again, God made everybody incomplete. So the fact that you have got personality flaws is part of how you were made. If you die with the same personality flaws, you have wasted your time on this earth. The fact that you were born with those flaws is not sinful. Now, having said that, the flaws that you have, while they are not themselves sinful, may lead you into sin. So the behavior that you exhibit as a result of the flaws that you have may in fact turn out to be sinful. But the fact that you have that flaw is not itself sinful. So this is my little diagram. Down the right side are 13 midot, midot meaning measurements, and they are spiritual attributes. And as I've drawn my little diagram here, the yellow areas are transparent to the light of God, the blue areas are opaque. So this particular person has a problem with humility, has a problem with generosity, is on the border of having a problem with kindness, has a problem with tranquility, and has a problem with truth. And what is going on in this person's life is if he is dealing with someone where it is important for him to be truthful, then that character trait will interfere with his witness to that person. In other words, 
If you're trying to witness to somebody and they look at you and say, you're a lying SOB, I can't trust a word you say, why on earth should I believe anything you've got to say about God? So what's happened in this particular hypothetical example is the way I have truth set up, truth would be a hindrance to that person's usefulness in the hand of God. So as you go through the inventory, and what you should have been working on this past week is humility, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. In most cases, most of you will be just fine. For example, this person picked trust, slightly to the left of center, but still within an acceptable range so that, so that trust doesn't interfere with his usefulness to God. So it is not the case that you're striving to get each one of these things mathematically lined up. What you are doing is trying to adjust your personality so that God can work through you. And as I have said before, Musar is not a self-help program, but doing things God's way will in fact benefit you. The object of the exercise is not to help you, it's to be useful to God. But as you become more useful to God, you will find that your own life goes better. By the way, one other thing. The idea here is to give you a set of tools. And what the Musar rabbis recommend is if you go through this list, one attribute per week, you will go through the entire list four times a year. So the idea is to give you some tools here and then turn you loose and expect that you're going to do some of this stuff on your own. And it's good to come back every few years and refresh, especially as we have new people that have come in. But this should be something that is part of your spiritual toolkit for the rest of your life. It is not just a summer course that you can then be done with when we get to the high holy days. Moving along here. This is a functional block diagram of a human being. And as you look at this diagram, the little cloud up in the upper right-hand corner is the spiritual world. Connection to God, connection to demons, connection to whatever is in the spiritual world. Your connection to the spiritual world is in what is in Hebrew called the neshama. And neshama, by the way, means breath, as does nephesh, as does ruach, different names for breath. And then at the bottom right-hand corner is your body. That's the clay. That's the part of you that's made out of flesh, the meat computer. In between, I've got three blocks here labeled the nephesh, the conscious, and the ruach, and that's what Christians would call your soul. So what I've got is body, then three blocks in the middle are soul, and then neshama is spirit, if you are doing this in a Christian setting. So you hear them talk about body, soul, and spirit. What I've done is I've broken it out into functional blocks. The ruach is what keeps the meat warm. That's the part of you that keeps your heart beating. It keeps your food digesting. It takes care of the electrical impulses to get your fingers to wiggle if that's what you want. All that's handled in the ruach. You don't really have access to the ruach. Except, of course, if you're practicing a sport or something, or learning how to dance, or learning how to swim, or ride a bicycle, most of that takes place in the Ruach. So once you've learned how to ride a bicycle, you never need to think about it again. All you really have to think about it is how tired you are and what direction you want to go. But you don't need to think about staying balanced or any of those kinds of things. That's all handled in the Ruach once it knows how. The action here is in the nephesh and the conscious mind. 
the conscious mind is the part of you that you plot, think, and ponder with, and that's the part that you have access to. The nephish has been called various things. One of the things it's called is the unconscious mind. That isn't quite right, but it'll work. And that's where your stability is. We are going to talk about the nephish as if it's a problem. Because your nephish is the part of you that keeps dragging you back into the habits that you want to get rid of. And keeps dragging you back into the behavior you don't want to have anymore. So we're going to treat it like it's a problem, but it is not. It is part of how God designed you because without it you would not be stable. So your problem is if you've got stuff cooked into your nephish that you are not pleased with or God is not pleased with, we need to figure out how to change it. But the things that are cooked into your nephish that are just fine, you want to have there because that keeps you from being double-minded. And I've got some arrows on there. I've got wimpy little yellow arrows and I've got big, heavy, strong red arrows. And the wimpy little yellow arrows go from the conscious to the ruach and to the neshama and that would be what I would call willpower or mental ascent. So if you make a decision that I want to do something, you're operating on those yellow arrows. The red arrows is what I would call belief and habit. And belief and habit are much, much stronger than mental ascent and willpower. So over a period of time, you may decide that you want to stop smoking, or you may decide that you want to lose 10 pounds, or you may decide whatever, that's operating on the yellow arrows. Until you get the red arrows on your side, you're going to go back to smoking, you're going to go back to weighing 10 more pounds, all those kinds of things, because your stability wants to drag you back to where it is. This is not bad, it's part of how you're designed, but when you want to change it, it's a problem. So now what we're going to talk about is how do you change it, how do you communicate it? Memorize those two things on the board behind me. Behavior reveals the nephish, thinking does not. Actions change the nephish, thinking does not. So what your nephish does is it reveals what you actually believe. Because over a period of time, whatever your nephish has baked into it is going to prevail in your life. And so the only way you can tell what's baked in there is to watch what you do, watch what you say, watch how you behave in various circumstances, and seeing how you behave will then reveal what's baked into your nephish. I give you an example from my own personal self. I used to be an itinerant software teacher. They pay me big bucks to travel various places teaching people how to write code. And one of the things I discovered about myself as I was sitting in a seminar with this with other instructors, and they were teaching us how to be instructors, I was the class spring butt. Everybody knows what a spring butt is? Always got a comment, always got a pertinent question, always got something to say, big bright shiny face. Well, I would never have thought that about myself until I was thinking back and saying, wait a minute, that's how I behaved. That's baked into my nephish. So I got myself a job here where I can teach and it's okay. I am dead serious. I mean, you're all laughing, but I'm dead serious. That's who I am. And when I'm in a situation where somebody's trying to teach me, that really gets in the way. 
But when I'm in a situation where I'm trying to teach other people, that's an asset. But the only way I would know that is to watch my behavior. And this week I was sitting there thinking back over my time as an instructor, and I said, wait a minute, that was what I was doing. That was really annoying. If I were the instructor trying to teach me, I'd have really been ticked. And they were. So what I'm saying is behavior is what reveals the nephish. Thinking about it doesn't, because we all have this self-image in our mind and thinking, I'm the model student, I'm really good, I'm quiet, I'm well-behaved. Why are you mad at me? That's the first part of the inventory. Watch your behavior. And then the second part of that is action changes the nephish. Thinking does not. So you can think all you want. Boy, I want to be a really generous person, or I want to be a quiet, meek person in a class and be well-behaved, or I want to be whatever. The only thing that will change your nephish is doing that on a sustained basis. And then it becomes part of you so that you no longer have to think about it. Until you actually do it, nothing changes. Simply making the decision in your conscious mind will change nothing. You then have to start doing it. And for a brief period of time, you have to exercise some willpower. And one of the things that we said last time is rather than attacking something you don't like, change something complementary to the thing you don't like. So let's back up here a second. So for example, let's say that our hypothetical guy behind me with the yellow one slammed over to the left, let's say that the left side of this is pride and the right side of this is self-abasement. So this person has a problem with pride. Well, instead of attacking pride directly, what you can do is you can work on uh, honor. And honor in this case is the honor you do to someone else. So by consciously working on honor, working on showing more honor to other people, what that will do is it will tone down the effect of your pride. And so you can work these things complementarily. You don't have to necessarily directly attack one that's a problem. You can look at the rest of them once you know what they are, and you can say, huh, I got a problem with pride. But what I can then do is make a conscious effort to give honor to everybody around me so they won't think I'm such an arrogant SOB. So that's sort of a background. And by the way, as we go through this, I'm going to do less and less of that background. I'm only doing it the first couple or three times. So, behavior reveals the nephish, thinking doesn't, and actions change the nephish, thinking does not. So humility is having the same view of yourself that God has of you. Or another way to say it is taking up the appropriate amount of space in every situation. And the example we used last time, which I thought was excellent, was the uh, Supreme Court nominee, Judge Kavanaugh. When Judge Kavanaugh is sitting in his courtroom, he should take up all the space. He should be running that courtroom. He should be making sure the lawyers are doing what they're supposed to do. Their focus should be on him, and he should be in control of that courtroom. Well, one of the things that Kavanaugh also does, and has apparently done for a long time, is he volunteers in a soup kitchen to feed the homeless. Under that circumstance, what he does is he stands quietly behind a serving line and he dishes out soup. It is not his place to suddenly be the biggest guy in the room in that soup kitchen. There he is simply a servant that's dishing out soup. 
So what he's doing is he's taking up the appropriate amount of space depending on the situation where he is. And just like the scripture says, Moses was the most humble of all men. Moses took up the appropriate amount of space. When Moses needed to fall on his face, Moses fell on his face. When Moses needed to stand up and split the ground in two, Moses stood up and split the ground in two. He took the appropriate amount of space in every situation. And then the final thing is pride is inappropriate focus on yourself. And it doesn't matter whether your self-image is negative or positive. So if you're arrogant, everything revolves around you and everybody needs to pay attention to you. Me being a spring butt, right? So I'm in the class and I'm being a spring butt and that's arrogant behavior because nobody is there to listen to me but I am making me the center of the class. That is inappropriate. The other one is crawling into the room and sitting quietly in the corner and hoping that nobody notices you because I'm just not very important. So there's two into the humble spectrum. And if you're on either end, it is not good. Because in both cases, you are really focused on you. I am so unworthy. Oh, I'm terribly unworthy. Well, that's a focus on you. Or I am the most important thing in the room, and that's a focus on you. So you've got an inappropriate focus on yourself on both ends. Humility is not simply the absence of pride. It can also be the absence of self-abasement. So you should go through the week. And you should start off with a phrase. And depending on which end of the spectrum you fall for humility, the phrase could be, I am but dust and ashes, which is, if you are on the pride end of the spectrum, that sort of draws you back toward the center. I'm not really such a hot deal. I am just dust and ashes in God's eyes. Or on the other end of the spectrum, if you have a problem with low self-esteem, your phrase might be, Christ died for me. I'm important enough that Christ died for me. And that, again, pulls you out of low self-esteem back toward the center. So what you do is you start the day with an affirmation. Really good way to do it is to sing it or chant it. Because your nephesh responds to emotion. And when you sing or chant something, it goes in a different way and your nephesh pays attention to it, as opposed to just thinking it, which your nephesh doesn't pay any attention to at all. Then you go through your day. At the end of the day, you sit down with a piece of paper or a journal or a notebook or whatever you have, and you just write down what happened in my day today that has some bearing on humility. Just observations of the day. And as you go through a week of that, what you will start to have is some observations of how you behaved and you remember I say, behavior is what reveals what your nephesh is doing. Thinking does not. So as you go through and you go back over your notebook after the end of a week, you should start seeing a pattern. Which, by the way, is why you go through these once a week, four times a year. Because you'll start keeping a notebook, and over the period of time, as you read back over that notebook, you will start to see, this is how I behave. That's how I figured out I was such an annoying spring button is I went back and I said, wait a minute, this is how I was behaving in that class. Now, I wasn't thinking at the time that I was being an arrogant spring butt. I was simply thinking, I was contributing to the class. I was making things go along well. I was asking pertinent questions. I was being a really 
useful guide of the instructor. I was helping other people understand stuff. No, that wasn't what I was doing at all. I was being prideful. And it's only going back and auditing your behavior that you see how you actually are as opposed to how you think you are. Because all of us have a really good opinion of ourselves in our minds. And we all have a really great justifier. We can justify our behavior no matter how scummy it is. But the only thing that reveals what's actually there is behavior, which is why the exercise is start the day with an affirmation. With pride, it can be either on one end or the other, depending on where you think you are. Then watch how you behave during the day, and then at night, write down what you did. Most of you are going to find that you are mostly okay. Don't accept other people's labels. Now, if you keep running into the same problem, then that's a clue. If everybody that meets you says, you arrogant SOB, then that's a clue. I'm very serious. You will get feedback from other people, and that's okay. But the idea here is to get yourself adjusted so that you're not in God's way. Now, if you're standing up for the gospel, well, sorry, that's what's true. And the fact that you don't like it and you think I'm arrogant for talking about it is not my problem. So again, it's situational. Why did we start with humility? Humility is the seat of your self-image. If your self-image is out of whack, then everything else will be skewed out of whack because you will see all of your other character traits in relation to either an elevated or depressed self-image. So humility will throw everything out of whack if it is out of whack. It's sort of like if you have a ruler that's too short, everything's going to be too small. If you have a ruler that's too long, everything's going to be too big. You want a ruler that's about right, and that's why we start with humility, is to get you sort of lined up. We're going to go through all of these. This is the order that I happen to have them in. It is different than the order in the book, but it is the same as the order that you saw in my little slides. So what we're going to do now is gratitude. Hakarat Hatov in Hebrew, and that is seeing the good. Now, a couple of scriptures. You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Gratitude. And another one, Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So one of the things that happens to everybody is we get into the soup periodically. Some of us get into the soup more than others. Understand that in every situation you find yourself, there is room for gratitude. And there's lots and lots of good rabbinic stories about this. One of my very favorites is there was a Eastern European Jewish family. And when the communists took over, apparently the guy was a rabbi in the town. And what they did is they shipped him and his family off to Siberia. Oh, my. I mean, how terrible is that? Well, a few years later, the Nazis came through and killed everybody in the village. Being sent to Siberia saved him and his family. And he then wound up after the war in the United States and so forth. So you can't tell from your immediate circumstance 
whether this is for good or for evil. So what you want to do is start looking for the good in every situation, not being Pollyanna. I mean, you've got to deal with the bad stuff that happens. You absolutely do. But that doesn't mean that you cannot be grateful for your circumstances no matter what. For those of you who have the book, you'll want to read the section on gratitude, which is the one we're doing this week. Have a spectrum here, positive and negative. One is being ungrateful. And the other one is psychophancy, which is to say, oh, thank you for beating me, sir. No, I'm, I'm serious. There are people at that end of the spectrum. That's gratitude on the wrong end. And then, of course, ingratitude is not being thankful for anything. You don't want to be in either place. You want to be in a place somewhere between gratitude and acknowledging. You know, acknowledge the things that have been given to you and be grateful for them. One of the things to understand as you are assessing yourself is there is no limit to what you lack. I still don't have my Ferrari, okay? I keep giving that hint every birthday that comes up and nobody has given me a Ferrari yet. I don't even have a pony. So no matter what circumstance you're in, there is always more that you don't have than you do have. So focusing on what you lack is a short trip to mental illness. Now, don't get me wrong, it is perfectly fine to have goals. I want to work at my job, I want to be here for a few years, I want to do well, I want to get promoted. Those are all just fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But being envious of someone who has a better job, or being envious of someone who has a better car, or more money, or a better wife, or a better husband, or a better whatever, that's where there's no limit to what you lack. One of the things with gratitude, then, is finding the place to be thankful for what you do have. The phrase that you are going to repeat every morning, and you're going to repeat it after me until you get it, is Gamzu le tova. Everybody? Gamzu le tova. Gamzu le tova. Come on. Gamzu le tova. Gamzu le tova. That's your phrase every morning, which means this too is for the good. And as you start off in your day, say it, chant it. If you can sing it, that's good. Go through your day, and as you run into obstacles, and you will, pull that phrase up and say, Gamzu le tova. Again, Gamzu le tova. This too is for the good. And then at the end of the day, write down your observations. As you go through this a few times, you will start getting an idea of where you are on the gratitude scale. And if you have a problem with where you fall on the scale, then you can start working to go the other way. <laughs>